You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Uh-oh, guess what day it is. Guess what day it is. Huh? Anybody? Mike, 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 Mike. What day is it, Mike? <laughs> Welcome to Earth Station One, a weekly podcast dedicated to all things sci-fi, fantasy, and much, much more. Sit back and relax and enjoy the show. Hey there, listeners of the Earth Station One podcast. Welcome to another episode. We're here and we are talking all about Peacemaker, the DC show that is now living on HBO Max. That's right, folks. He first popped up in The Suicide Squad and John Cena, the wrestler who you didn't know or couldn't see, was is the lead in this. And I wouldn't have ever thought this. It was pretty awesome to see his acting chops really kick in. I think the only thing I had ever seen him before was, I think it was one of the Transformer movies he was in. So it was very interesting to see him, you know, take the lead, take the reins per se, and having James Gunn at his side was pretty awesome. So we're going to have a fun time talking all about this one if we don't mess up his name. But, you know, we'll have to wait and see. But, you know, the man who has, you know, the peacemaker all the, all the way right at his side is Mr. Mike Gordon. Howdy! The champ oh. is here! I don't see anybody. Do you see anyone? That's, like, invisible. No, you can't. I can't see him. Yeah, you can't see, hear me either. I, I see Mike so, Gordon. So, so whenever I mess up, you won't be able to hear me. Oh, I only wish I'm the one who has to edit it, so it's okay. <laughs> yeah, we're an audio podcast, so you can't see any of us. Exactly. You won't be able to see them anyway, so it's very cool. <laughs> so it's good to see you, sir. And we actually have a new addition to the show. That's right, folks. We have a new co-host starting this episode. Let's welcome James to the show. Welcome, guys. How's everybody doing today? Very well. Thank you. And welcome to Earth Station One. Oh, appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You know, folks, when you actually win contests with ESO, you actually it, we actually pay off our side of the bargain. And some places just like go, all right, here's a sticker, go away. We don't want to bother with you. But what we did with DragonCon last year was that we did, you know, if you went into the silent auction and you did, basically you could bid on a co-hosting for five episodes of any of the shows on the ESO network. And James decided to do earth station one as his first one. So welcome aboard, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thanks for uh, allowing me to win that great, great prize of five episodes co-hosting. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Actually, you didn't win it. Your wife won it. though. That is true. Yeah. She gave it to me as a birthday present. That's awesome. Well, looking at your background, I think you're going to be a perfect fit for the show. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. So I think this is going to be pretty awesome. Do you want to tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Um, like I said, my name's James. I live just north of Houston, a little place called Kingwood. It's basically a suburb of Houston, um, Texas native. And I currently am a college professor at one of the colleges here in uh, Houston. That is awesome. What do you teach? Uh, I teach a lot of the trade skills, so like pneumatics, hydraulics, programmable logic controls, electrical oh, wow. components, stuff like that. Oh, that's so, pretty uh, awesome. Industry and manufacturing. Nice. That is really, really nice. Well, we're so glad to have you on board, and we'll get to know you over the next you know few weeks or something as you know as you grow with us. 
And so very much nice to, you know, welcome a new co-host because, you know, it's just been me and Mike for a while. So it's nice to get some fresh blood in here sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I know. This is just a yeah contest, quote unquote. Yeah, because now I got to be careful because I guess if I mess up at all in this episode, like, yeah, I'm out. Well, yeah, kind of sort of, but. (laughs) All right, all right, all right. right. I just want to say, people, have your drinks ready for tonight. Don't worry. (laughs) That's all I want to say. But we'd love to hear from you guys at home. Please write us feedback at earthstation1.com. We'd love to hear about what you thought of Peacemaker. What have you been liking? What else has been, you know, on TV? We talked about the Book of Boba Fett last week. We still want to hear more about what you guys thought about this one, that one. And, you know, we're coming up to ends with a couple other series. And we actually have Moon Knight popping up in a couple weeks. So we definitely have a lot of geek stuff to keep on top of. So we are going to be super busy over the next couple months. But definitely write us feedback at herstation1.com. Also, of course, we like to say howdy to our friends at Patreon. You know what? We have the ESO board silly finally went live, and we're talking about the Olympics, folks. The Olympics, you know, that were the Olympics in of our memories. So definitely check it out, ESOPatreon.com, and you could become a supporter too, patreon.com slash ESO network. And also our friends at Tifosi Optics. Here in Atlanta, it has been sunny. It's been beautiful. And you know what? sunglass weather all the way and you know what our friends over at tifosi optical has amazing glasses for you you can make your own lens colors your own frame colors it's pretty darn awesome what tifosi can do so definitely check it out tifosioptics.com and if you get a chance 10 percent off folks there's a coupon code put in earth station one let them know that you we sent you definitely would love that tifosioptics.com and now we're here with new friend of the show filmmaker international best-selling author john walsh welcome to the show hello hello thank you for having me guys it's sam um, it's a pleasure and an honor to be on absolutely it's a uh, it's a pleasure for us as well uh, welcome to the station uh, for those people who may not be familiar with you and your work just tell us a little bit about what you do well um i'm a filmmaker making um, documentaries and dramas here in the uk i've had a couple of films in the cinema um, a film about the death of henry VIII called monarch which is now on prime video and the political documentary Tory Boy, the movie, also on Prime Video. Uh, in the last few years, though, since just before lockdown, I've started writing making of books. So films that we know from the past that we need to delve more deeply into. Um, but it all kicked off with Ray Harryhausen when I met him when I was 18. So that's kind of my my big geek journey kind of gets a v- verification tick from uh, from Harryhausen. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, that... Now, you started with your filmmaking career, from my understanding, at a very, very early age. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So I, I managed to get a Super 8 camera when I was around eight years old. Um, so that was kind of like a super birthday to be Super 8 and to get an, uh, an 8 mil camera. <laughs> and of course, for those of people in, in the, the know, they'll know that's a film camera. So you've got little cartridges of film um, and the, the cost for developing them had to be included and so on. And you could only film for two or three minutes on each cartridge. So you had to be quite picky in what you filmed. It's not like today where you can get your phone out and just film anything for hours. Um, I, I ended up doing stop, lots of stop motion animation, nowhere near the standard of Ray Harryhausen or Jim Danforth or others, but just things on the tabletop because it's a good way of conserving the frames, which were so ludicrously expensive back in the day. And that eventually developed into me becoming 
becoming a BBC Young Filmmaker of the Year when I was 15. I went to the London Film School when I was 18. Two years later, I was directing professionally when I was 20. And I looked like I was, um, I looked like I was, I was 14. I mean, I, I can show you a picture of me at film school here. Um, this is when I met Ray Harryhausen and I was 18. Wow. Yes, you do look, you do have that young face. So <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's one of those things that uh, I always wore black shirts to try and make myself look older and it didn't work. I just looked like I was auditioning for Depeche Mode. Um, and, and that was it. So, um, but I was always racing to try and catch up with the older students who were in their mid twenties. So terribly old. Um, two years of that, so I left film school, started working professionally and making my own programs for, for TV and so on. And I've, I've continued doing the same ever since. Um, a few years ago, Ray Harryhausen asked me to become a trustee of his foundation. And, and I have been now for some time. And so that's really, if you like, the separate side of my professional work as a filmmaker is as a trustee to the Ray Harryhausen Foundation. And with its 50,000 estimated items, it's the largest animation archive outside of the Walt Disney Company. Wow, that is amazing. And, and what a legacy his work was. And, and obviously you were inspired from, from a very early age. Yes. I mean, my parents took me to the cinema when it was half term, school half term, to see films like um, Jason the Argonauts, The Golden Voyager Sinbad, a favourite of mine, Clash of the Titans behind me. You can see the minty fresh crack in here. So he looked when he was um, not, this is about 10 years after the film was made. So he's, he's looking kind of minty fresh there. And, and one of the big problems we have with the collection is that inside the armatures are steel and and ball and socket joints and they're covered in layers and layers of of liquid rubber and latex but over the years that's kind of deteriorated so we've had to kind of make sure the creatures are maintained and restored and we go on exhibitions we're doing something with the oscars museum the george lucas museum we've just finished a, a massive exhibition in scotland in edinburgh at the edinburgh uh, national gallery where the entire collection was fully restored and put on show and sort of during that process, I gave talks at Comic-Con and different places. And I, and I wrote a book um, about Ray's unmade films, Harry House and the Lost Movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was giving a talk about his lost movies when somebody approached me and said, oh, this would make a good book. And I was like, I guess, you know, but I don't have time. You know, I was looking at my watch. <laughs> right. I don't have time. To, I haven't time to read a book, let alone write a book. And I was thinking, well, who are you to tell me to, to write a book? And they said, well, we're a publisher. I was like, oh. Come closer. <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden, I had all the time in the world to listen to the publisher. And they said, no, seriously, we could do something here. And so I spoke to Vanessa Harryhausen, Ray's daughter, and we kind of discussed it because it was an ethical question, because Ray was never that keen to talk about his unmade films. He saw it as failures. He saw that every mm. film he didn't make and every scene that wasn't shot uh, in the top um, left-hand corner here, the man coming out of the sand was going to be an extended sequence on the Isle of Bronze in Jason and the Argonauts. In the middle, War of the Worlds, which was never made, ah. The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, then behind my head. Um, marvellous art, great ambition. This was before George Powell's War of the Worlds and a long time before Terry Gilliam's Baron Munchausen. Mm-hmm. So Ray was had his finger on the pulse often but they didn't always get the backing. So he made 16 feature films, but he didn't always get the um, the backing at the time that he should have done. Of course, we look back now and we realise, ah, he, he was quite right when he predicted the uh, disaster genre would come back in the early 70s and so on. So the book is is lots of 
missed opportunities. And it's in some ways, it's quite sad if you take that point of view. Most people are kind of delighted to have a look inside to see what could have been. Yeah. Ray, Ray turned down the first Marvel movie. Which one was that? Um, it was going to be the X-Men. And it was Stan Lee who approached him in the early 80s. And the details of that are all in the book. Wow. So, um, you know, we, because we have the archive and we have access to everything, we have high-res images of all that stuff. So then that came out in September 2019. And I did Comic-Con that year as well. And then by the following year, of course, we were in lockdown. And that's when I started working um, more seriously than on other making of books. And I just finished my fifth book. So we're going to be talking wow. about Escape from York, which is book three. Yes, that's amazing. Yeah, I was going to say, because so was it lockdown? Was the pandemic was the one was that what inspired you to to devote more time to writing as opposed to producing? Um, kind of yes and no. I mean, I it was an unexpected success, Harry Housen, The Lost yeah. Movies. And the publisher said to me, would you like to do something else? And we were possibly thinking of doing something from the Harryhausen archive. And I said to them, you know, next year, uh, 2020, is the 40th anniversary for Flash Gordon. And they were like, sure, we we know that. We don't need you to tell us that. I was like, okay, don't <laughs> be rude. Knows that. <laughs> Everyone knows that. I was like, oh, okay. You know when you think you've, you've found the golden ticket and it's like, no, it's not gold. It's just foil. Put it down. I was like, oh, okay. Um, so they said if you can come up with the rights, then you can write the book because there was a big issue around who owned the rights to make this book. Mm-hmm. Because King Features, the publisher, who's right. part of the Hearst organization, owned the character rights. So for comic strips and whatnot, uh, Studio Canal, the French company, owns the physical film itself. Um, but some of the rights are retained by Universal Pictures, who are the original distributor and co-financier on the picture. And so I spent eight months negotiating using my sort of film producer smarts to get everyone into a room, to get them to agree to this particular project. And they did. And I thought, great, we've done the hard work. Now we can do the easy bit and write the book. But I got the shock of my life when I asked each of the participants, can I see all of the high res images? And they were like, sure. And when you find them, we'd like to see them too. And I was like, what? Oh, okay. And I was like, well, is there somewhere, you know, some guy who's got them all? And it's like, no. So other than the front of house sets and a few publicity stills, they didn't have anything at all. And to put it into context, this film, Flash Gordon, cost three times what the original Star Wars film cost in 1977. Star Wars, A New Hope, as we have to call it now. Episode four, isn't it? A New Hope. Um and and so lots of money was spent and there were there was lots of beautiful photography taken of the sets and the special effects and so on but where was it where was it so i had to appeal to the fans and and i worked closely with people like bob linden mayer who's like flash gordon's number one fan and other people who had collected um props from the film uh, rolf screedy who's a who's effectively the armorer for flash gordon he has all of the armor yeah. props and I just spent the best part of a year negotiating with people and, and getting access to their photographs and then contacting actors, people related to producers on the, on the picture. Dino De Laurentiis's now late wife, Martha, helped me extensively there. And Mike Hodges, the director, wrote forward and so on. So it kind of set a template for, for moving forward. The book sold out in its first print run within weeks of it coming out in uh, 2020. 
So the publisher did what publishers do, and broadcasters have done this to me as well, and said, look, let's go again. Is there something else? And so Escape from New York was the next next kind of film that we felt didn't have the attention, certainly in terms of a making-of book, that it deserved. And the film had been beautifully restored by a studio canal in 4K, which is quite an expensive process to go through. And at mm-hmm. the time, virtually no films from 1981 had had the 4K experience. Raiders of the Lost Ark hadn't. Clash of the Titans still doesn't. The Great Muppet Caper, Dragon Slayer, um, Superman 2. None of those have been 4K'd, and yet John Carpenter's Escape from New York has been. So that was a great book to work on. Similar issues there. There wasn't much photography, and what there was wasn't great quality. So I needed to find new things and tell new stories because people know the basic problems and issues on the film, but I wanted it to be much more than that. And so there we found ourselves in a similar situation to Flash, but on a film that was smaller in size and scope and scale. And of course, it all takes place in one night. Right. So there isn't the, the costume changes and the set changes, what have you. But the book was received marvellously well. It sold out its print run in, in within, I think it was a few days of it being published as well. It was late published, I think in uh, November, December last year. So a second print run is is already up and running. Which is, it's which fabulous. That's awesome. And I, I, I look forward to checking that one out because I discovered you through the Flash Gordon book that you did. Uh, I read it last year and I'm a big Flash Gordon fan. Um, I saw it in the theater when it first came out and I've loved it ever since. And, and I thought I knew everything. I'd seen everything about Flash Gordon until I saw your book. And I was like, man, there are, there are production photos. There's imagery. There's stories here. There's stuff that I had not seen anywhere. And it's a true testament, and it's a labor. It seems like it's an absolute labor of love. Oh, yes. No, thank you so much. Yes, it was. I, I approached this like I would approach a feature documentary. And I asked myself these questions. You know, if I could go back in time, what would I want to know the answers to? And there was two questions that burned right into me, and they were around the special effects and the budgets. They had more money on this film than either of the two Superman films, Superman 1 or 2. Mm-hmm. And the, the flying sequences in the first two Superman films are really magical. I mean, they, they work wonderfully well today. How is it that you had more money on the special effects for Flash Gordon, and yet the, the effects weren't as accomplished or weren't the next step up from Superman the movie? And the same for the spaceships. Why was it that there was no motion control? when you had the money to employ people like John Dykstra and so on. So I always had my suspicions and I needed somebody to, to confirm my suspicions. And of course they were confirmed. Um, and, and it was great being able to work with people who'd worked on the film. They gave me photos of deleted special effects scenes. I did an interview with Mike Hodges for, for all of these books. I do like vodcast series and there's like 10 episodes of the Flash Gordon official story, the film vodcast series, where I speak to people because there's never enough pages. What is it they say in George, we need a bigger boat. I need a bigger book. I need a bigger book. Uh, the publisher, though, is never, they never, I never have that response from the publishers. It's always quite quiet. I mean, Titan are very supportive, but who am I to ask for more pages? Um, so Mike Hodges said to me, he was amazed. He said what you said, Mike, which was, I read through it. I had no idea what was going on in, in the back room with the FX and this uh, spaceship graveyard sequence and what wow. happened with, um, you know, Princess Aura's giant spaceship, which they built full scale on a giant set and, and it was never filmed. And then there was the question around deleted scenes. 
because the folks at Studio Canal have the original film and the original film elements, but do they have what's called the neg trims for the deleted scenes? And there's some debate as to which scenes were planned but not filmed and which films were, which sequences were filmed and then trimmed from the locked final print. And so I located scenes that had been filmed and testimony from people who were in those sequences, including camera people and actors and so on. And so there, there is a chance in the future that those trims can be found. They will be mute because oh, wow. the sound is not recorded wow. with, with, with picture. But, you know, with my book, had I got to Studio Canal with my book before they'd done their 4K remaster, they said they would have lowered me deep into their vaults and let me alone with a light box and had a look at some frames. Wow. Because I'm one of those kind of geeks who I can tell you kind of which Doctor Who episode you're looking at from just the first few frames. Um, because, yes, sadly, I'm one of those people. And I could identify a scene if it was from that film and which sequence. And probably if it hadn't been used um, having been involved with my own film and being involved with neg cutting and answer prints and interpositives, it's an area that I'm familiar with and I know. So it's the language I can speak when I'm interviewing effects people and producers and, and technical people. And I often felt with um, many making of books, the actors get a lot to say, which is, you know, <laughs> which is okay. That sells the but, book, right? <laughs> Well, I guess it does to some extent, but the stories we kind of really remember, and certainly for people like me, I really want to know, well, why? Why did you not use the Zoptic system to fly the Hawkman in the way they did on Superman the movie? Why were you not using front projection? Why was it blue screen? Why was there no motion control? Why? (laughs) Um, You know, so it's, um, and Gil Taylor, he lit Flash Gordon, he lit the first Star Wars film. So, you know, they had the right people, everything was was right. And yet Dino De Laurentiis planned to buy Pinewood Studios, the James Bond Studios, and he was going to make three Flash Gordons back to back. That was the big plan. And we have it in the book. The story is told for the first time, the plan of everything. I managed to pin Sam Jones down and get the truth out of him, which wasn't that easy. It was uncomfortable for both of us. Mm. So it was like a true crimes podcast. You know, I had to kind of find the evidence, get the stories from the witnesses at the time, and then go back and ask people to, they'd like to revisit their statements and, uh, and give a more accurate account. And that's what I did again on, on escape from New York. All right. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to it. I mean, with Flash Gordon, I, as much as I love the movie, I know that the making of was not, was, it was pretty bumpy and there was a, a lot of messy stuff going on. And I would imagine, well, I don't, you know, to be honest with you, I don't know much about the making of Escape from New York, but it's one of my favorite movies as well. You're still in my, you're right in my wheelhouse, man. <laughs> and and uh, I, I, I really appreciate, like, and the fact that I know some of it was filmed in Atlanta, uh, we hear, we do our podcast out of the Atlanta area. Um, and I've seen some footage of the stuff that was shot in the Marta station there. And that looks pretty amazing. Um, I think you have both the lead actor and the director were working with, I don't know if that was their then ex-wives at the time, but their wives at the time. Right. So I would imagine there's a lot of like behind the scenes stuff in there. That's pretty, pretty interesting. And the, the effects, the, the world that they created was pretty spectacular. It was, you know, the, and the story around the effects, you know, they went to Roger Corman's New World Pictures, who had just finished their their first project as a special effects house, Battle Beyond the Stars, for Roger Corman himself. 
Um, so he created his own mini version of industrial lice and magic. And, and really the tragedy there was that this was their first commission outside of Roger Corman. They managed to win this project from Avco Embassy, John Carpenter and Escape from New York. Um, but they, they didn't increase that. They didn't go on to make other um, medium budget science fiction special effects films. And I kind of got to the bottom of the story of that, some of which couldn't be published in the book, but mm-hmm. it was to do with professional jealousy around Academy members and who would or wouldn't vote for them in the special effects chapter. Um, so there was, there was a lot more that, that could have gone in and uh, that was politically, as it were, sensitive. But um, I love the effects in Escape from New York. John Dykstra, yeah. he quoted $3 million to do the effects and $1 million up front for himself. And of course, he, at this point, had created all of the Star Wars special effects yes. and was working on NBC television's Battlestar Galactica, which was a spectacular Star yeah. Wars kind of TV show. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, they couldn't afford that on Escape from New York. They had around $350,000 for all of those FX shots. So where are you going to go? And it was great. All of the team down at New World came up with great innovations, ways of making Air Force One crash into New York. And when we think now how George Lucas has gone back and tinkered with and, you know, interfered with his films. <laughs> right. You, you know, you don't think it needs it for John Carpenter's films. When we see the opening of Escape from New York, actually, it's quite graceful. All of those FX sequences work really well. You know, we talked earlier about Ray Harryhausen. We look back now at Harryhausen, we think, oh, actually, that's that's better than I remembered. And it's it stands up better today than a lot of photorealistic CGI work because it has a sense of drama and a, and a sense of the moment. And so John Carpenter's films are kind of hermetically sealed in, in the world of John Carpenter with the music and so on. So it was kind of important to decode that for, for the reader. You know, what does it mean he did his own music? The effects were done in a certain way and the design of the film, right even down to the type fonts and, and his use of, of fonts in, in, in opening titles. They were the questions I had as a bit of a geek nerd. I was kind of like, if I ever met John Carpenter, you know, there, there's that fantasy pe- that people do. Who would you invite to your dinner party if right. you could invite six people and so on? And, you know, I I want to ask those questions of those filmmakers. That's, that's um, so awesome. That you'd be like, if I ever met John Carpenter, I want to ask him about the font. <laughs> you know because sometimes studios impose fonts in a kind of cookie cutter right. style when they're doing opticals for you absolutely and, and and then sometimes filmmakers like woody allen are quite kind of obsessive about it, it has to be a certain style of font in a certain place on the screen and and i you know carpenter is one of those people who's interested in the, the detail um you know his student film dark star has 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 that kind of writ large on it but i think making of books for films that are being better remembered now than when they came out is, is, is what's happening. You know, a few years ago, they said that physical media was dying. You wouldn't be able to buy DVDs and Blu-rays in your supermarket. That, that is true. However, the new market that's emerged are these giant size, uh, single films are as big as a house brick or two house bricks. If you've bought the, um, Dawn of the Dead 4K sets, which is enormous and effectively one film in four, four different cuts. They've done the same Studio Canal has with uh, Flash Gordon, with Total Recall, um, Escape from New York. Not everyone wants that experience. Some people will flick the film off the minute end titles come on. This, this book's probably not for you. And if you wanted to know that Charles Bronson was nearly cast as Snake Plissken, then this book is for you. Because wow. if you want to know those things that could have happened, the alternative universe, 
the compromises that were made that led to artistic triumphs and so on, then it is fascinating. And if you've ever been involved in the filmmaking process or wanted to be, these books can be kind of a warning from history. Don't do it. Because as hard as you think these films are to make, sometimes they're much harder and, and more traumatic. It's, it's, it's great. And, and it's great that you're capturing the comprehensive in-depth making of these movies before, before it's too late, before there's nobody left to talk about exactly what went on behind the scenes, more than just a Wikipedia entry or an IMDb entry of trivia facts. You know, these are, these are, like I said, labors of love. I, I, after I read the Flash Gordon book, I was like, man, I wish everybody who had a favorite movie had a book like this to go with their favorite movie, you know, because that's, that's, that's why we love it. Right. Um, and, uh, and it shows in that book and I'm looking forward to reading escape from York as well as you said, you've got what, three others that you're working on or two others. So I'm yeah, like, I finished, I finished two more. So they, I'm not allowed to finish them. Wow. I finished them. So I've, I've finished um, book four is completely finished and I've been looking at the layouts at book five, the manuscript has gone in. And, uh, but both book four and five are coming out this year and one in September, one in November. Wow. So they've got me working like crazy. So I didn't have much of a, of a, of a lockdown the way other folks did, where you could sit back and watch box sets of Mandalorian, which I've only just caught up with and, and the others and all the other Marvel stuff. So I have all the streaming services and I'm paying for them, but uh, it's, it's catching up with them. Finding the hours has been the yeah. difficulty. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we look forward to hearing more news about what those are. And now that we know what you've been working on, uh, let's talk about uh, where your passions are. Mike, I think he's ready for the geek seat. Oh, I think this man was born for the geek seat. (laughs) It totally sounds like it. So, John, are you ready for your first question? I am, sir. Please fire away. Okay. What was your favorite geek out moment? When I opened up a London telephone directory and found R Harryhausen listed and I rang him and he picked the phone up. Oh, wow. Wow. It's just that easy. You make it sound so easy. <laughs> well, I had to ask the, the, the barrier to get through were my parents, because of course, back in the day when you had to pay for telephone calls, it was cheaper after 6 PM in the evening. So my mum would always say, well, if you're ringing someone do it after six. So I waited for a minute after six and rang him. <laughs> Ma, is it okay to call now? <laughs> yes, go ahead. What is your most disappointing geek out moment? Uh, the remake of Clash of the Titans in 2010. Oh, I could understand that. I love the original. The original was just an amazing movie. I saw it at the theaters, and it was just like, I think we went to go see it two or three times, but it was just so much fun. And then to see what they did to it in the remake and the sequel. it makes you want to return though that's the good thing about it it's not actually turned people off of the original clash it makes people realize actually i want to go and see original clash of the times again so well exactly and it was just like when i first you know a couple years later when i was watching la law i was like wait a minute it's the guy from clash of the titans (laughs) (laughs) yeah the very very naughty harry hamlin as much as he plays the good guy read my book harry house and the lost movies and it'll give you an insight into why he never worked again. Oh. Mm. In cinema, he worked in TV. But oh, so no. He became an insurance risk because of the way he behaved. Naughty, naughty. Oh, naughty. gotcha. What geeks you out the most? 
Um, I think it's behind the scenes secrets revealed. If I hadn't worked in film and TV, I'd like to have been like a magician or a ventriloquist. So I'm really interested in finding out how they did it. Um, I was quite obsessed with Superman, the movie and the flying sequences and how they were done. So that really geeks me out. If someone says, I think I have an effect shot for your book, but you might not want to use it because it's from a deleted scene. I'm like, yeah, that's going to get a double page spread. Um, so yeah, anything that's behind the scenes secrets revealed or mistakes or that sort of thing, that really, that really kind of gets me excited. Oh, I totally understand that. What turns your geek off though? Um, I think bad restorations of classic films or bad remakes of classic films that kind of that just crushes my, my soul. And, 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 and when you know they can be so much better, but someone's just thought, nah, people who remember the title from that, anything will do, anything goes. And that, that's, that's crushingly disappointing. And I, and I brought such goodwill to remakes in recent times with, um, I don't know which franchises I, I want to get myself cancelled from for, for work in the future. But um, King Kong versus Godzilla. I mean, I was really excited by that. And I, and I thought the trailers, you know, I thought, no, that I'm into stop motion, but I thought it would look pretty good. And then the film itself... What a wasted opportunity. That could have been really something very special. I hated walking um, out of it going, meh, pretty much. So I do understand. Because mm. it got you so built up with the film itself, with the, the trailers and everything. And it's like, oh, this could be so good. This could be so much fun. And then I walked out and was like, really? That was it? That was it? There were some great moments. Mm. But it was just like, Ugh. what fictional character would you like to meet the most? Bubo the Owl, oh. Bubo the Owl from Clash of the Titans. Oh, yeah. And uh, we've, we've, ah. star, we've been working with Star Race Toys to recreate the Foundation collection. And Bubo the Owl is coming out in a one-to-one ratio this year. Really? And I've been doing, yes, and I've been doing unboxing videos you can see on my channel. If you Google Harryhausen unboxing, it's me. It's my, my hairy, pale ginger arms that, that's pulling things apart. <laughs> um, but we've... We, we've given full access to the collection to Star Race, and they've got the, a beautiful one-to-one ratio of Bubo the Owl coming this year. So um, oh, that's exciting be times! Amazing. Wow, I know what I'm going to mm. be asking for the holidays. Awesome. <laughs> what fictional? Well, character? we've done the. Cr- oh, well, ahead. I was going to say we have the the Kraken, and we've, we've I've just done an unboxing for Talos, Carly from Golden Voyager Sinbad. That's my most recent unboxing. So every time people see these, I, I feel that they must be financially slightly crestfallen because they think, ah, but I want that one too. And it's like Sophie's choice times like 20. It's like, which, who do you leave at the station? And it's kind of like, Oh my God, it's, it's so difficult. You know, if, if ever there is time to sell a kidney, cause you have to, now's the time. That's the time. Now is the time. Understandable. What fictional character would you not like to meet though? I, th- I think, you know, I, I kind of toyed with this question and I couldn't escape the one that first came to mind every time. And it's Jar Jar Binks from Phantom Menace. Number one answer on the show. So he like pretty uh, much is the number one answer. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it's hard to think of anyone other than that. I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I could understand that one completely. What is your favorite geek word, phrase, quote, or pose? Release the Kraken. It's got to be, <laughs> isn't it? Release the Kraken. I could see it. I totally understand that. I hear it in the voice too, which is awesome. When you say that, even release the kraken. Exactly. Yeah, the last of the seasons. Yeah, that is such so much fun, so much fun. What is your ideal geek occupation? I'm doing it. 
I mean, I'm writing books about classic films. I'm, I'm being, f- since I left film school, I had a plan. I had a job lined up at neg cutters where you cut negative in a laboratory. Mm. And I thought well, I could try and stay within the industry. Anyway, I became a successful director at the age of 20 and I never had to work in any other field. And that was always my plan. If I could be independently employed in film and TV and not have to do anything else, a support job. And so I'm doing it. So I'm, I'm in my ideal geek occupation. I'm doing these books and unboxings. I get sent tons of free stuff as well, which is galling because when I was younger and I could hardly afford to put a battery in my watch, you couldn't get anything for free. And now I'm being like showered with stuff. It's fabulous. That is awesome. That is really awesome. What geek occupation would you not like to do though? I would not like to be my assistant. Because uh-huh. <laughs> I know me. That's great. I, like I that. love it. And so how many assistants have you had over the years? Um, it's in double, but not triple figures. Okay. Ooh, wow. But nothing's gone wrong. I mean, it's, you know, there's been nothing uh, that would involve a tribunal, of course. But, um, it's, <laughs> He's it's, no Harry it's, Hamlin. It's, no, I'm certainly, no, I'm certainly, you know, I, I would have my lawyers open up with, Your Honor, if I can just say he is no Harry Hamlin. It's like, you know, everyone's like, oh, Everyone's like, oh, because we thought oh, he was. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Although it'd be fabulous to be Harry Hamlin because he's an incredibly beautiful man. I mean, he's, you know, and he's a good actor. So I wouldn't mind being a bit more difficult and looking like Harry Hamlin. <laughs> if somebody said, you know, you can look like him, but you got to be a bit more difficult, I'd be like, Yeah. I can manage that. That's in my wheelhouse. A bit more difficult. You know, I can turn it up to seven or eight. This might lead right into your next question then about what is your <laughs> ultimate geek fantasy? Um, well, my ultimate geek fantasy is one I've been trying to actually put into, um, into realization. In Harryhausen, the lost movies, everyone has talked to me about remaking Harryhausen films. We don't need to do that. There are enough films that haven't been made. The official sequel to Clash of the Titans was called force of the trojans lots of money was spent on it there is a full script for it there's lots of designs for it you'll see it's in the book and i've been talking to streaming services and to different people over the last couple of years since my book came out to try and make force of the trojans a reality a cinema film using ray harryhausen creatures and people say bah what about cg you've got to have that and what about stop motion you can't not have that well i i spoke to um some people who won't let me tell you who their names are, but they're well-known streamers. And they said um, that very question to me in a pitch meeting. And I said, look, my plan is to have a face-off in the way that you have a face-off with King Kong versus Godzilla, a face-off between stop-motion and photoreal CG. And they were like, oh. They actually they made that sound, about, oh, like that. Like I suggested we have cakes for lunch. Oh, that so sounds good. I'm, I'm hoping I'm hoping that's good. I hope that's a good. Oh, that is awesome. Yeah, sounds yeah. like a good one. I yeah. love it. Well, John Walsh, I've got some great news for you, my friend. You've made it through the geek seat. Congratulations, huzzah, huzzah. Mr. Mike Gordon. Tell the young man what he's won. You have won a lifetime subscription to the ESO Network. It's a value easily worth sixty-eight dollars and four cents. I have no idea what that translates to in pounds, um, but probably not much. <laughs> Sounds good, though. I mean, it's, you know, in, if, if we could backdate it to 1981 money and bring it all the way forward, then it would oh, probably, sure, it'd sure. be worth a lot now, wouldn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. It? Um, it's been 
tremendous having you here with us. Um, I'm looking forward to whatever your next books are. Are you getting behind the cameras again at all anytime soon? Um, kind of, yeah. I mean, I've been doing these unboxing videos and these other kind of um, YouTube things uh, mm-hmm. during lockdown. So, oh, and this has just been nominated for a Rondo Award. So it's my oh, third yes. Rondo Hassan Award for Book of the Year. Um, yeah, I have got plans to do more film and TV stuff. Um, whether it's Harry House and stuff or my own stuff. So there's always something coming. And as I say, I've got a couple of films on Prime Video. They're free for Prime members. Watch Monarch about the death of Henry VIII. Very sad film, very grim. And watch Tory Boy the movie, a political documentary that upsets everyone who sees it. And it's got very strong language throughout. And when you watch them, I get a little shaving of money. If you can imagine a coin being gently rubbed and shaved by Jeff Bezos, or some of the crumbs from those pennies fall into the hands of filmmakers like me. But um, not many. Um, And if people want to check out what you're doing online, check in with you, where should they go? If you go to johnwalshfilmmaker.com, you can find all my social media links. Or if you just Google John Walsh Filmmaker, you can see me in different T-shirts and in the suits like I'm going to court. But it's not. It's at BAFTA when I won an award. But uh, people say to me, were you going to the awards or were you going to court? And I was like, well, what's the difference? You know, you can you can lose at both. But, um, you know, yeah, disappointment to be had in both places. Well, we will have a link to all that stuff in our show notes so that people can click on that stuff and check your out, check your stuff out. We uh, really appreciate it, man. It's been fun having you here. My absolute pleasure. Well, I hope you invite me back onto the space station for the for the next books from there in September and November. Anytime, absolutely, anytime, absolutely. We would love to have you, man. This has been great. And I said space station. I meant to say earth station. Earth. We have to go back to the beginning and to record it all over again. We could record oh. this segment right over. It's okay. You know. Take two. Take two. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Well, thanks. Let's welcome our new friend, John Walsh, to the show. No. <laughs> Second time's always best. Third time's the charm. They said that for Back to the Future. Third time's the charm. I wasn't sure when I watched it. Exactly. <laughs> Me neither. That's awesome, man. Well, John, thank you for joining us tonight. It's been great. Let's take a quick break, and we will be back in a moment, and we are going to be talking all about The Peacemaker. This is Ashley Pauls with this week's box office buzz. It is time to head to the theaters this weekend for Superhero Geeks and The Batman is premiering. Now, I will say this is far from the first time we have seen Batman on screen, of course. And normally, I don't know that I'd be as hyped as I am right now for a Batman reboot if it wasn't for the team involved. I'm really excited to see director Matt Reeves and his take on the Batman franchise. Matt Reeves was also involved in the recent Planet of the Apes reboot, and I feel like those movies are some of the best, most underrated blockbusters of recent memory. They're better than they had any right to be and went really deep with the story and the characters, so I'm excited that Matt Reeves is going to bring that same level of depth, hopefully, to the Batman. I also feel like Robert Pattinson is a really intriguing choice to play Batman Bruce Wayne. 
If I was going to make up a short list of people who I thought would be a good Batman, I probably wouldn't have thought of him just off the top of my head, but I trust Matt Reeves, and I also think that it's cool to do a slightly unconventional pick. Surprise people. I remembered I was real skeptical when Ben Affleck was cast as Batman. He's actually my favorite portrayal of Batman, so I am excited to go in and see something new and see what they're able to bring to this classic superhero story that has been told many, many times before. And it's exciting to see some of these DC movies raise hype and get critical praise because I feel like for a long time there was the tendency to kind of joke about the DC cinematic universe and say like Marvel versus DC, the MCU's doing better. I'm the kind of fan that I enjoy both. Like I think there's room out there for the DC extended universe and the Marvel extended universe. And I want to see both do well. So it's, it's exciting to see the DC cinematic universe find its footing a little bit more here. And that's it for this week's box office buzz. Hopefully I'll have lots of good things to say about Batman on the ESO podcast next week. This Labor Day weekend, fandom is calling. Let Michael, Mike, Darren, and Jen help you answer the call with the latest news, notes, tips, and tricks on the DragonCon Report. Available as an audio podcast, visit DragonConReport.com and for the first time ever, watch us on video via Facebook Live and YouTube. We want to help you celebrate your fandom in all the best ways. So listen up, and we'll see you at the con. Have you ever heard of a guy named Peacemaker? No. He is a trained killer. We've got trouble with that maniac. Go! What are you waiting for? That thing better not crap back there. Can't house train an eagle, dude. Not without stealing its soul. Hey, Dad. It's been kind of a rough go for me lately, Dad. You don't say. Somebody shot me and the building fell on me. You let somebody shoot you? It's not like I invited him to come shoot me, Dad. Pathetic. I thought you were in prison for life. I work for the government. Post office? You think they'd let me out of prison to deliver mail? I don't know. It's the first government job I could think of. I kill people for them, okay? This task force doesn't officially exist, which leaves us on our own. We call our targets butterflies. They are a serious threat to the safety of American citizens. There's something weird going on. You think me and Vigilante are too stupid to notice. Hey, everyone, which one's me and which one's Eagly? Okay, you're half right, but you score 50% of the test at school. What do you get? A D. School is my bag. It's for dorks. That guy's a clown. But there's something about him that's sad. Is your target in sight? Peacemaker, take him out. Even the kids? Yes, terminate him immediately. Take the shot. He told me to kill kids. He didn't say why. Because right now the world needs a son of a bitch. And you're the only one I got. I thought you loved peace, no matter how many men, women, and children you needed to kill to get it. I don't know. Lately, I'm having feelings about things. Dad, maybe I'm a grower, not a shower. What? An individual you don't like, and then you learn to like. You're comparing yourself to a chode. Not in a bad way. 
Your dad is not a good man. Still family. My advice? Cut it out with the introspection. The mind is a den of scorpions better left running from, not towards. Ah! You just got shut it! You haven't been shut it? No. Two jerks in costumes and a couple of rejects. It's like a real team out there. Yo, what the hell is that? It's a grenade I tied to a Russian tank shell. Why not just the grenade? A grenade blows up like two people. How many people does this blow up? I don't know. I invented it this morning. What? Eat peace, mother. Hey everyone, welcome back to Earth Station One. Now it is time for the main topic, and we are looking at Peacemaker. That's right. The I guess it is a spin-off of the Suicide Squad film and stars the man you can't see, Mr. John Cena. Let's take it away, Mikey. Yeah, we're here to talk all about the HBO Plus show, Peacemaker, uh, with John Cena, the aforementioned John Cena. And uh, we've got a great crew. It's a full house today. So many people wanted to talk about this show, but we squeezed them on in. But we only accepted applicants with the their name started with the letter J. So, of course, James is still here from the opening. And we also have with us back returning is Jay Shearer. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad to be back talking to you guys. This is always super fun. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's been way too long, sir. And I did give you a shout out uh, last week when we talked about uh, Mandalorian because uh, <laughs> your 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 podcast was very helpful in, in me figuring out that whole character and, and, it, and a lot of my thoughts on that one. So That's awesome. Good to hear. So I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say about Peacemaker. Uh, we also, I'm going to stop. Yes, I'm going to say Peacemaker. I'm going to try to say Peacemaker all the time. Uh, and we also have with us, I think this is his first time on the station. Jeremy Wilcox is here. Jeremy, howdy. Hey, how's it going? Finally, good to see you saying howdy for once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's good to see you, sir. For those people who may not be familiar with you, tell us a little bit about what you do. Um, yes, I'm the host of the Phantom Squad podcast and is a pop culture podcast where I do celebrity and non-celebrity interviews like John Davey from Doctor Who and John Cooper from Skillet. And I just review geeky stuff and, you know, just geek out on pop culture and whatever in your brain music or whatever. Awesome. Awesome. All right. We will start with you. We want to get right to the discussion um, and we'll start with you. What was your just thoughts? What did you know about the character of Peacekeeper before you started watching the show? And overall, what were your thoughts uh, at the end? Well, initially, I liked the character in the movie, but I kind of I didn't like him a lot that you kind of during the series, you could like him that redemption over the show but initially i hate i didn't like him i didn't hate him but i didn't like the character i like john cena but overall it was i like the character in the show and i just kind of like the the dynamic gotcha gotcha so you were not familiar with peacemaker yes i'm going to say that peacemaker uh damn you i, I you know I, I have uh i have farscape on the brain so peacekeeper comes more naturally to me i guess um, but so you weren't familiar with him and in, in the comics, really? No, I knew the Suicide Squad comic, just not the the character Peacemaker himself. Gotcha, gotcha. Understood, understood. Jay, what about you? What were your thoughts? Uh, uh, what did you know about the character going into this? Well, I knew zero about the comics. Like I haven't read any of the comics related to that character. Uh, and honestly, just from the Suicide Squad is where I knew him from. That's the only context I had to him. 
Um, and I still, I still haven't read a comic at all. I've only seen the movies <laughs> and then the, the movie and the TV show. So, and and your thoughts overall uh, going out, coming out after the series finale? Oh, I've really enjoyed it. I mean, there's something about what James Gunn is able to do that I'm sure we'll get into further. But he's just able to, like, if you would have told me that at the end of the Suicide Squad. I would go on to love the character of Peacemaker. I'd have been like, you've got to be kidding me. There's no chance I'm going to love this character. And yet you love the guy. So it's pretty amazing what James Gunn is able to do. Yes, I definitely want to talk about that transition uh, because that's in some ways what the show is all about, I think. Um, But good call. Uh, James, what about you? What was your um, familiarity with uh, Peacemaker? Mine was the same as Jeremy and Jay's. I didn't really know anything other uh, other than the movie itself this, when, when he came out in Suicide Squad. Uh, but I loved his development in the series, how he kind of did a 180, and we'll talk about that later, you know, on how his belief system was, at least in my opinion. Absolutely. Absolutely. And for those people who have uh, joined us and haven't listened to us before, we will be spoiling... Uh, this season, as well as probably the Suicide Squad movie, probably a lot of other stuff in the in the DCU. So uh, maybe even a comic or two. So if you are not uh, familiar with or you don't like spoilers, then you might want to watch the series and then come back and, and listen to us talk all about it. Uh, Mike, help me out. You must have known about him from the comics, right? Oh, I've known Peacemaker all the Thank way you. back, <laughs> all the way back from the Charlton comics, and. It was interesting because that's when he used to, you know, associate with the question and with the Blue Beetle and Nightshade and all those characters. And it was very interesting to see his transition slowly into the DCU because they never fully took advantage of his character and until he started appearing in Suicide Squad um, because – for those who don't know, in the movie The Watchmen or the graphic novel, he was comedian, was Peacemaker. And so, you know, that's basically the type of character he was in the comics. And he was the ultra-violent, ultra, you know, pro-war type thing, and which was kind of a contradiction because of his name. And that he also wore a toilet seat on the top of his head, as many people <laughs> say. So... <laughs> It was always a very interesting character, and I think he might have even been created originally by Gil Kane. I'm not 100% sure, but I know it was that era. So I was very interested to see where these different characters went when they got into the DC after Crisis on Infinite Earths. And, you know, Blue Beetle, Captain Adam all took off. Nightshade a little bit, but... Judo Master and Peacemaker never really did, which was really always interesting. But when they announced that he was going to be in the revamp of the Suicide Squad, I was like, Peacemaker? Why do you want Peacemaker? He's not even that great of a character. And then I heard John Cena was going to be playing him. And I was like, okay, I like Cena. But Cena's always been a a face. He's always been a good guy in wrestling. And to see him play an a-hole in the movie was a big stretch for him. And I was looking forward to see if he could do it because he's trying to fit, you know, follow the path of The Rock and become, you know, a massive movie star. And when I saw him in Suicide Squad, 
I was like, okay, so far so good, and I liked it. He was kind of, you know, oh, I'll eat a, I'll eat a, if somebody tells me to eat a field full of dicks, I'll do that, you know, for my country. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it was just like, oh, God, it's like, oh, he's an idiot. He's a total idiot. And then he betrayed the, you know, Rick Flag by killing him, and then, you know, he getting killed too by Eldris Elba's character and I thought that was a real fitting end and then if you stayed for the after after you know credit scenes you saw he was still alive and it was like what no 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 what are they going to do and then literally afterwards oh James Gunn's doing a spinoff of this with Peacemaker it's like okay that explains the end scene but was I thrilled with it I was happy with, you know, John Cena's performance as Peacemaker or as my calls him Peacekeeper. But, you know, but it, it's it was interesting. I'm going to try to stop doing that. It was just interesting to see the character grow and his evolution because I think he was handled better in the miniseries than he ever was in the comics, according by DC. So I'll be very curious to see where what happens next and your thoughts on tonight's episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I was, uh, I did, um, was first introduced to him from the comics. Uh, in 19, in the late 70s, there was a, a, a group called Modern Comics that reprinted a lot of Charlton comics. And I picked them up, uh, I picked a lot, a lot of those up. The Blue Beetle was a big one. Uh, I think Juno Master was another one. And Peacekeeper. And Peacekeeper had these beautiful covers. Peacemaker. Um, Peacemaker. Peacemaker. <laughs> I know. Peacemaker had these beautiful covers. Now, I will say, I did look it up, uh, and and he was created by Joe Gill and Pat Boyette. Okay. I'm not familiar with either of those guys. But, uh, but anyway, um, and I pretty much forgot about him. And when he was uh, sort of introduced into the DC universe, I think that was post-crisis, right? Um, he always had... Before when he was with Charlton, he always was a diplomat who was committed to peace, but he was also willing to use force to do it. And they didn't like they didn't dis, dis, they didn't depict that as uh, ironic or satirical or anything like that. I mean, that was pretty straightforward, right? Um, so you pretty much took that as well. Now, when he was introduced in DC, they kind of changed it a little bit and and made him sort of um, unstable, I think, uh, mentally. Um, so you, they open that up and, uh, also he was influenced by his father a lot. Um, I do know that. And I don't know if his father was a supervillain. I don't remember that, but, uh, yeah, I do. I did always, uh, also, yes. Uh, because when Alan Moore did Watchmen, he wanted to use the Charlton characters, but they, DC said no. So he changed everybody's names and a little bit of their personalities too, but they're pretty much, you can still see them in there. And yes, comedian is based on peacemaker. And, uh, and that is an interesting kind of dynamic there. Um, but so like you guys, uh, when he was announced for suicide squad, I was, you know, John Cena, I was like, okay, I haven't seen, I've followed him in wrestling, but I haven't seen a lot of his movies. And, uh, <laughs> and, and when Peacemaker, uh, was, uh, man, this is going to be awful, uh, through the whole thing. Um, so, um, I was, I was 
not concerned, but I kind of thought it was just going to be a one-time thing. But I think it was announced even before the movie came out that they were going to do a series. So obviously the events in the movie, when he's quote-unquote killed, um, you know, I was like, well, is there going to be a prequel or what's going to happen here? And of course we get the stinger at the end credits where we find out he's still alive. And, uh, and so I had pretty much faith in the, in the Suicide Squad movie as a whole uh, before I went to see it, as well as the series because of James Gunn. Uh, James Gunn, at least for uh, Marvel, the MCU movies he's done, the work he's done for them has proved to me that he's more than capable of putting together, especially team-oriented uh, stories and and really getting into characters. And even on the outside, it looks like he's, like as the Brits would say, taking the piss out of a lot of characters. Um once you scratch that surface, like he, there's some pretty deep things going on here. And I think that's exactly what happens with the series as well. Like at first he seems like kind of a joke um, and not a very good joke at that. But as we find out more and more about Christopher Smith, um, I think it, it becomes much more interesting. And certainly by the end of it, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I thought it was a fun ride. I liked a lot of the other characters that were introduced and I would definitely want more Peacemaker. Um, uh, as we, as we continue. So, and we're going to get more, I understand there's going to be another series as well. So that'll be interesting to see where that goes. All right. So that was our introduction, um, to the character. Um, what did you, what was one of the things that you liked about whether, whether it's a character or a sequence or an episode, uh, James, we'll start with you. What's something from the series that you, you really thought was outstanding? What I really liked was, you know, Christopher Smith's, development from the very beginning i'll do anything for peace but then the last episode he was given an offer to do something for peace by being controlled and he chose not to because he wanted his friends to be able to still have their lives and be able to interact with other people without being controlled by the butterflies i thought to me that was the biggest thing on the show i really loved that development and you see it through each episode particularly the one where they're in the catering van and they're it's always a good time to rock right and they're having a great time they're listening to music and they start bonding as a team and you can kind of see how that's a major shift there and that impacts deeply with chris chris's character towards the end you see it when he makes that decision not to do anything for peace which is his motto in the movie and the very first few episodes of the series Yes. Yes. I, I definitely agree that that was, uh, that, yeah, that's the backbone, I think, of the series. Um, it really, despite the fact that there's a, it's a team book, it, it turns into a team series. There's a lot of other characters. There's a lot of things going on, but I think it is, it is solely on John Cena's shoulders. And, and that character, uh, it has moments throughout. There's not a single episode where I think you sort of ignore the main character for a little while. Not like some other shows we can think. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> We're looking at you, Boba Fett. <laughs> uh, uh, Jay, what about you? What's something you appreciated about the series as well? Well, first of all, if you're not playing a drinking game where if we say Peacekeeper instead of Peacemaker, then you're missing out on this podcast. You could have ten times as much fun. Um, it's so much but, better no, I, than I think... me messing up words in the Dragon Con report. It's okay. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So people are wasted by now. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. We're having a good time. Um, no, I think uh, I think James nailed it in terms of the development of the character. But like to to really to really understand where all of that is coming from, James Gunn breaks down a character who you're literally meant to hate at the end of the Suicide Squad. And he says, how could I possibly make this guy interesting? And it's done in such an artful way that every episode adds to the character, like James was saying, like you were saying. We see his weaknesses. We see why a character who we hate would have actually weaknesses that we could empathize with. We see the past trauma that he's experienced, not only as a little kid, but then even with the, the events of the Suicide Squad, that being traumatic for him and, come, and, and arising in his life. So we can empathize and sympathize with him there. And then when, when, he, when he gives us the influence that his father has over him, then we start to see this complete picture is that he has taken these father figures and in trying to live up to them, has almost has, has basically built his life around that. So he takes his, his own father and then turns that into um, into Waller, right? And then that turns into the U.S. government. And now here's a guy who's just out there trying to please who he thinks to be his authority figure. And the way that's done is so artful and it's unpacked so artfully. And he doesn't, James Gunn doesn't just leave us with, well, this is just Peacemaker show. And so he gets the nice development over time. He develops several of the other characters along the way. And we get to see all of those aspects too. So, um, you know, I, I think that there are some things that you can criticize about this show. I think there's some things you can probably criticize about James Gunn. But when it comes to, to like, to me as a writer and a storyteller, when I watch something like this, it's like this is this is art. This is a shared human experience that we all have that can actually get us to act differently in our daily life. It's like we can see the people who we've previously hated and be like, wait a second. If Peacemaker can change, maybe these people that I'm having a struggle with can change as well. So I, I love it from that perspective. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, I, I definitely learned from uh, a very early age while watching. Once shows started to have uh, st- like season long storylines and develop their characters instead of just have everything return to the status quo after every episode, um, the ones that I really appreciated were when they would take a character that I absolutely hated uh, <laughs> and, and yet made me by the end of the series, even before that, uh, like care about them and, and actually appreciate them. Um, and, and yeah, James Gunn does, does that like in spades in this, right? <laughs> because, Absolutely. because not only, I mean, obviously Peacemaker is the, is the lead character and is the name of the show. Um, but I think almost all the characters, when we, when we first meet them, we're sus- we're at least suspicious of some of them. You know, and I think there's only one character uh, that starts out at the beginning that we just end up even hating more and more and more every time we see him. And that's, of course, Robert Patrick's character is uh, White Dragon or uh, Christopher's dad. Funny as hell when we saw the White Dragon uniform in the, you know, the headquarters or something. (laughs) The first time I saw it, I was like, Blue Devil! I was like, oh, no, no, no. No, no. Couldn't be so lucky. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. That was, uh, I think Blue Devil actually appeared in Swamp Thing, actually, oddly enough. Man, it's getting to be that, like, there's not too many DC characters that are left to depict. Uh, But I love the way that even with, uh, in this, 
And in uh, Suicide Squad, James Gunn just ten- sort of took the DC Universe Who's Who guide and just sort of randomly like picked a page, put his finger down and said, okay, I'm going to pick that guy. Like, that guy's going to be in this. That guy's going to be there. This, this woman's going to be in this and that. So, um, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, Jeremy, let's go to you. What's something that you appreciate about the show? Uh, the same thing, like everybody else said, like uh, building on top of that, like you do see the story of Peacemaker and his growth, but also with everybody else. Like, like you said, we kind of are kind of weary about some of their beginning, but they all you see over time, they all have their own traumas as well as Peacemaker. And then you see them all cope differently over time, how they cope with their problems. Like there's always the, you know, the line of tragedy equals comedy. And you see how all of them, you know, some of them peacemaker and vigilante use comedy to cope with their tragedy. So I like how he built not only just, you know, peacemaker and the gang, he actually, you know, showed us the heartbreak of why they're all where they're at through their own journeys and tragedy. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Uh, Mike, what about you? It was interesting because like everybody else, I despised the character from the movie and he was not likable at all. But by the end of it, he became, he became a real boy. And, you know, it it was, (laughs) and it was interesting because you actually started caring about him. And, you know, from the, you know, even in the first episode, all he was thinking about was himself. And, you know, he wanted, he wanted to sleep with hardcore. And then when that didn't work out, he ended up picking up the woman at the bar who ended up being a butterfly and he got his ass kicked by that woman too. It was awesome to see this, this huge muscle guy getting kicked by this five foot, nothing, you know, skinny woman and who he just had sex with. And, you know, and I loved it when he said, do you know what set her off or anything? And he said, well, I don't know. And he says, did she find anything? Well, I did bring the files about the Senator in with me. And it was just like, you idiot, you know, <laughs> it was just, it was, and it, it was great that way. And there was so many moments you brought the vigilante to the screen so much better than the Arrow versus version of yes. Adri- and yes. Adrian Chase. Oh yeah, and I loved seeing it. If you followed the Vigilante in the comics, folks, throw it out the window. Throw it out the window. You know, because Adrian Chase was an inter- uh, district attorney who had his family killed, and he then became the Vigilante. And I appeared in Titans, Teen Titans. He originally was a Teen Titan. It was a spinoff mm-hmm. of that because it was Marv Wolfman and George at first. And so it was very interesting to see. Um, but I loved the characterizations of it. You had Judo Master finally make his, you know, screen appearance. And, you know, and he loved his hot Cheetos. So it was pretty awesome to see. And it's like, oh, those hurt. You know, and he's flicking them at him. <laughs> and, you know, and you now respect butterflies more than you ever did before, I'm sure. So it was pretty yeah, cool. I think the butterflies was unique to the series. I don't think that's anything that was no. in the comics. No, ever. that's all so, that was um, original. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. Sorry. And then to see the cow. The cow was like oh, right. nothing you ever saw on the big screen or on the small screen. <laughs> no, no. That's the stuff of nightmares. Uh, yeah. Um, 
So uh, interesting. So I asked uh, four people what their one of their favorite things about the series is, and none of them said the opening credits. I was shocked. <laughs> <laughs> the opening credits, you know, is, is amazing because literally you sat there for, you know, the first five minutes after you had to pause it because did I just see what I just saw, you know, the first time? And it's like, oh, I wonder if they're going to change it every episode and everything. Nope. Nope. It was pretty damn amazing. And uh, the song is even catchy, which is pretty awesome. And I remember the first, yeah. I remember the first time it came out. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's hard to believe that's not an eighties song. It sounds so eighties. Um, and yet it was, uh, I think it came out like, I don't know, a decade or two after that, but. Wigwam, right? Yep. Uh, do you want to taste it? And and uh, I, I appreciate the the fact that you know as we've gone on with TV on network TV anyway, they they want to put more and more ads in there. So the opening credits and the art of the opening credits has gotten less and less and less, and 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 almost become extinct on national TV. Um, so it's nice to see streaming bring that back. Um, in a way that's entertaining. Um, and, uh, yeah, it seemed to be, it was one of those things. It was kind of like a music video where I never got tired of watching it. Like I just go to like every time, you know, there was, you know, if it, if it, if the option to skip the intro was there, I just didn't see it at all. Like I just, I would not have used that. Um, you know, and, and, and James, this is another thing that I like about him is the reason that obviously he's having fun. But the reason he wants to do it is because he wants to make sure that people see the names and and that people are credited. And the same reason, that's the same reason he puts a stinger at the end of the credits, because he wants people to actually go through the credits. He wants all the people who work on the movie to get their due. And and I appreciate that. He's not just doing it to do it. Um, and, uh, and, and I appreciate that as well. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about, there's a couple of things about James Gunn about this series uh, in particular, and a little bit about Suicide Squad as well. Two things of concern that I had, and I'm not even sure if I'm completely okay with. One is the fact that if you were a fan, now there wasn't a lot of them, but if you were a fan of the Charlton heroes, of Peacemaker, of Judo Master, um, uh, in the comics, when you watch the Suicide Squad, you probably were very, very mad. And after watching the series, you were probably very, very mad. Um, uh, because this is not a uh, great adaptation of that character, uh, those characters at all. Um, uh, I think they're, they're you know, and, and granted, there's not a lot of those people. Um, and that's to say they don't count, but it is kind of like he does sort of take something and and sort of run with it and do his own version of it. They also the Charlton people, you know, most of them have died out already, so it doesn't really matter anyway. It's true. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, yes. Um and also James Gunn, you know, he he has a lot of fun with his writing, with his directing, with his cast and crew, but it's also raunchy fun, right? So like James Gunn doesn't make I mean he can make a PG, PG-13 movie. We saw that over in the MCU. That's not what he wants to do. That's not what he does when he does his original movies. And this much, this is much more of an original project for him 
than I think uh, the MCU stuff was. This is more of his vision uh, because basically, I'm, I'm, I'm sure basically the Warner Brothers is like, we don't know what we're doing with DCU. Just do whatever you want. I mean, we trust you because you had a huge success with the Guardians movies. We want that kind of magic. We want that kind of money. So just do whatever you want to do. And 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 he so he's pretty much I think got carte blanche. I mean he's even he even allows the characters of well the character peacekeeper in particular peacemaker in particular. Thank you. That I, I caught myself uh, to to sort of um, you know make fun of the other DC characters, especially the big guys. You know the big guns, and of course that wonderful cameo at the end. Uh, you know is is hilarious as well. Um, how do you guys feel about that stuff? Is it is it is it stuff that's that makes this more compelling, or is it something that it's it's only being able it's only good to use in the case of somebody who's skilled at doing it? Like you wouldn't want to see this. Just everybody have this kind of uh, Jay. What do you what do you what do you stand on that? Yeah, it's it's, it's really interesting because um, well, first I wouldn't want everybody to be to do it because I don't think everyone has the ability to do it well. And actually, I don't even think that James Gunn always has the ability to do it well, because it's one of my only complaints about the show. I think what I could be wrong about this, but my my assumption is that they're doing a lot of improv here because there's a couple of videos that came out about like, oh, this this whole scene was improv. Um, and there's something to be said about like, let's just say use of the F word. Right. If you use that word constantly to try and punch up jokes the jokes that don't land don't benefit from using that word and then once you've heard it 20 times in the episode the joke that is better punched up by using the f word or any word doesn't land as well as it could have based on the fact that all the other jokes were using it and didn't use it as well as they could have so i feel like i feel like it was almost kind of the cast was given the ability to kind of say the lines however they wanted to, however they felt like their characters would say it. And that to me got a little bit out of control because it was like, it's almost like everybody there was, was trying to one up the other person in terms of the jokes. And they would just punch in like extra words here and there to try and punch the jokes up even more. And that to me kind of overarchingly, of course, over the course of an entire episode and then over the course of the entire season kind of takes away from some of the punchiness. I think if you were more of a tactician as a storyteller or a writer, you would say like, no, 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 don't say it that way. Cause this joke's got to land and got to be really funny. And it's funnier if we use a few cuss words, whereas those other jokes don't need them. So just don't put them in there. So from that perspective, I think there are things that work and things that don't work. But the thing that I do like about what he's doing is he's testing that out as he goes along. Like how far can I go with this? Um, it'd be interesting to see what was on the cutting room floor to see what they said, like, okay, we can't go that far <laughs> or if there was anything, right. Maybe it's all in there. Um, but I definitely think that the reason, like my wife didn't like the show as much as I did, mostly because of the raunchy parts of it. Right. It was just kind of like, eh, it's, it's in there, but it's, it feels a little juvenile is what she would have said. Uh-huh. And for me, I thought that the character development got past that. It was like, but the character development is so good that it got past some of those elements for me. But I do think they overdid it a little bit. So I think you can do that. You can do that from time to time. We saw it with um, with Deadpool, and it works. We see it here, and I think it works. But I wouldn't want to see the entire DCEU become this, right? So that's kind of my take on it. 
Yeah, one of my uh, one of my one of my rants is the fact that uh, it seems like Warner Brothers DCU is pretty much R rated. Um, certainly almost all the content that we got over the last year or so, whether it would be the Titans TV series or Zack Snyder's Justice League or Suicide Squad or Peacemaker, whatever, all R-rated. Even the animated movies they're doing now are, are, are R-rated as well. And I just feel like it, it, you know, I love the shows and the properties that use that really well that show us something that we haven't seen before. And I like it in the hands of like someone like James Gunn, but if you're going to give it to me with everything else, then that's going to lessen how special it is with, uh, same thing with Doom Patrol. I love Doom Patrol. I wouldn't want Doom Patrol to change anything, but yet the fact that, you know, all these others are R rated properties. And of course that keeps, I mean, I know realistically it doesn't keep the kids out because we, you know, how we live now, like the kids are going to watch it anyway. But it just, um, you know, it's the old school guy in me, too, that is like, if it's not in prime time, it's not going to sell, right? So um, if you can't take families to it, it's not going to sell. It has a limited uh, ability to get over and to reach audiences if you uh, if you make it, you know, R-rated or whatever. Or even, you know, and now that we have all the properties like The Boys and... Uh, Kingsman and all that kind of thing that are doing kind of raunchy superhero stuff. Does the peacemaker does the peacemaker series like lose a little bit of its bite? Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on on this kind of thing, uh, James? Uh, I agree with you. You know, I was going to reference the boys and like Jay said, Deadpool. But I believe if done correctly, it's an amazing tool, especially if not every single character is raunchy. Because if you take ah, very good. super, if you take Superman. He's not he's not that raunchy, but if you put him with Aquaman and you take the last scene, you know, the cameo at the end, you know, you know, the F bombs were being dropped by Aquaman and the Flash and not and of course Peacekeeper. But Peacemaker. Oh, Peacemaker, you messed me up. Peacemaker. <laughs> but, Take the blame. Yeah, but Superman, Wonder Woman, and all those, they have that high moral. Even when, like, the boys, you have that one character who is morally higher than everybody else. And I think it builds into the human aspect. The, you know, they humanize the characters by doing that. Not everyone is going to be hunky dory, okay, 50s, 60s TV sitcom. But you're going to have some that are, and I think that punches up the ones that are being vulgar or cursing or whatever, and it also punches up the ones that have a higher morality. That's the way I see it. But I do see that there's a lot of it coming out, and you know you got to do it tastefully. You got to do it with you know proper directing and making sure that everyone is playing the character the way you want to see them portrayed on the screen. Yeah, yeah. I, I did think it was a great cameo at the end. Uh, amazing that they were able to pull that off. Um, the behind the scenes, you guys don't know, the behind the scenes uh, stuff of how that happened was really interesting to read. Um, but, uh, I, you know, it's funny because on the TV show, uh, The Flash, uh, Barry Allen has a reputation for changing time and messing with the timeline. And, and there's been a catchphrase. It's almost meme worthy. I think, uh, where people say, damn it, Barry, every time something wrong goes, what ha- happens in, in, on the Arrowverse. Right. And I'm like, wow, James Gunn and Jason Momoa just up that to, from damn it, Barry to F you, Barry. <laughs> I thought that was, uh, I don't know if he realized he was, he was playing with that meme. But uh, I thought it was appropriate. Um, Jeremy, what about you? How do you feel about all this? 
I agree to an extent with everybody else, but I kind of have another take on it because I know for a long time that DC has had this, you know, the shadow, the the darkness, the dark DC, and we know how Marvel had his what's supposed to be the darker for so long, and now bringing James, bringing you know, Guardians, bringing that. We got to remember the guy broke his, you know, you know, grind his teeth working on Scooby Doo the live action movies, so he's going to bring in that child wonder sort of thing, but. I think taking that, you know, that lightheartedness of, you know, coming from that and then, you know, doing the Marvel formula, bringing that to DC, you know, taking some of the lighter stuff, you know, it's not just a basically a dark world in Batman's universe. There is more to the DC than just the dark that people So I like. What I'm saying is that concept of him bringing in, you know, the lightness, hardness to DC and bringing that image, which I like myself, I guess being in my, you know, late 20s growing up on those things and comics and seeing that the light of DC growing on the comic books and not just, you know, watching the cartoons like other kids, you know, seeing those characters do the funny jokes of like me being in my 20s doing the dick and fart jokes that I know James is known for. Also, plus what we said about the music, I love just, you know, James is bringing in his playlist for everybody again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think a lot of that stuff, I mean, obviously, you know, having... Having you know, there's a coolness factor to it, right? Um, where it's like, oh, it's really cool to 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 say these things and do these things, and also, but I think the thing that makes James different is that he also brings heart with it too. Yes, uh, the the wonderful sequence where um, after they they survive or are successful in their first really team mission together. And they're in the van listening to, I can't remember what the rock song is, but they're listening to some rock song, right? They're jamming out. And one of them uh, even takes a picture of a selfie, right, of the group. And it's just a nice moment. That really reminded me of the moment, like, in... In in the Wayne's World, the first Wayne's World movie, where they're where all the guys are just sitting there listening to uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, and it's just something that like everybody can relate to. Like it's just it makes these all these characters and all this situation that's so strange and so crazy very relatable. Because how many times have you just looked around and said like, man, I'm really enjoying this. Let's capture it with a selfie. Um, and and you don't expect things like that in in a show like this. And James takes the time to make sure that those beats are there. Uh, which I think is really wonderful. Uh, Mike, what about you? Um, it's interesting because, you know, it went from raunchy to raunchy to raunchier to raunchiest. And it was interesting because, you know, even when he was escaping from the apartment with the woman who, you know, who, you know, he was having sex with, who turned out to be the butterfly. And it was interesting when he held up that couple you know the the woman was actually coming on to him because you know, she, <laughs> and then she she ended up being double teamed by her you know sleeping both with vigilante and you know peacemaker and it was just like oh damn dude that's where they went with it <laughs> and it was it was funny as heck though because you know that's the type of character he is and do i do i think he's going to change from that no but it was interesting seeing the bromance between Peacemaker and Vigilante also. Mm-hmm, Even mm-hmm. though there was times when it was more just the bromance with Vigilante and Peacemaker. Because sometimes it felt like Peacemaker is like, what the hell are you doing here? You know, <laughs> and, and everything. And 
And it's funny because when they first introduced Vigilante, he thought he was a joke, but he was no joke. He, you know, he could hold up his end of the bargain and he was, he was trained. He was, he was lethal. He was sometimes more lethal than Peacemaker was. And that was kind of real interesting to see because, you know, they played it off very, oh, you're the bus boy. What are you doing here? You know, type thing. And it's like, no, I'm vigilante. I'm, you know, we went down and bust heads and, you know, all this type of stuff. But he had sex with that other woman and vigilante didn't even take his mask off. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, not at all. No, because he had no idea who vigilante was until. (laughs) And, but yeah, and, but it was interesting. He'd make a great Mandalorian. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but it was interesting, too, because, you know, they touch on white supremacy. They touch, you know, there's nothing that they don't touch on. Immigration, world peace, the even the environment. They touch on all these different topics. And you know what? For James Gunn to do that, I was very happy to see because like you guys have been saying, the DC universe has become very dark and this lightened it up a bit, not to the point where it's, you know, Spidey hanging, you know, flying through midtown Manhattan on his webs and everything, but it's still lighter than a lot of the things. Hell, we're going to be getting next week. We're getting Batman and that looks dark as hell. Yeah, I believe that's R as well, isn't it? No, it's PG thirteen. Oh, it is okay. And everything, so they 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 fought to keep it PG thirteen. <laughs> right, they paid someone off. Is that what you're saying? Pretty much. <laughs> but yeah, but it and but it was interesting. And then the cameo at the end was just awesome. You know, I didn't expect it. I kept away from spoilers. I heard, you know, people who were coming on Facebook that morning who watched it already. Oh, I can't believe who popped up at the end. And it's like, oh, it's like, get away. Go away, Facebook. Go away. You're evil. Blah, blah. <laughs> you know, which is true anyway. But, you know, it's just, it's, I wonder if they're run by butterflies. That kind of would make sense. You know, <laughs> don't say that too loud. Oh, I know. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, but yeah, uh, but I love the scene where the butterflies took over the police station. That was oh, yeah. just, that was just crazy. Oh, that was just yeah. awesome. That's another song with that soundtrack. Like that's another one besides the intros, that monster song. I just been playing on repeat from that scene. And that's all I see is just the butterfly scene with that song. Uh, yeah. I mean, he's, yeah, that's another thing that we have uh, noticed about James is that he's really good with using, uh, utilizing music. Um, with with scenes and, and making and the powerful. Um, all right, so talked a little bit about what we like about the show and what works and what maybe doesn't work. Um, and unfortunately, we don't have time to get into the characters. And it looked like almost all of them were going to die at the end of this one. I was really surprised that a lot of them didn't. So we're going to have a series two. Let's uh, let's talk about real brief, real quick. Uh, as to end this, what do you want to see from season two? Where do we go from here with Christopher Smith and Peacemaker and, uh, you know, Argus being called out and and all of that? Uh, Jason, uh, what do you uh, sorry, Jeremy, what do you think? Uh, I just want to see like, you know, because a lot of people are like, why is his dad a memory? I just want to see, you know, them explore the psychological effects of how how his dad came back as the mind ghost. And then see how we get Economist back, because I don't want to lose Economist. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, uh, Robert Patrick is, is is like, oh, good, I get to come back next season. I, I didn't think yes. I was gonna... <laughs> Well, they, but now that I'm in his head. They need him for the next da- dance scene. What do you mean? <laughs> his moves were great. His moves were great. Uh, Jay, what about you? What, what do you, Where do you want to see the series go? Or where, where would you like to see? You know, I'm not even sure. The, the one, the, there was one scene that I really loved, and I would love to see them do more of this. And this seems like it's in James Gunn's wheelhouse. But there's that one moment where right before they're about to destroy the cow, the uh, detective who's been taken over by a butterfly turns to him and gives him this whole spiel about how he shouldn't do this. And he's been preconditioned to save the world and he shouldn't kill the cow and and uh and lo and behold he launches um he launches his his teammate into the cow right um and what i loved about that scene was was i literally was my wife and i were sitting there watching it and i literally look over to her and i'm like where is this coming from like all of a sudden we're gonna get this like morality message in the middle of this situation and of course no it turns out that he's not gonna he's not gonna listen to the butterflies and I really enjoyed that because what it did was it broke down the preconceived notion of why we tr- – we, the, the world is complex. We're trying to figure out what the world actually is and how we should respond to it. Um, and in those moments, sometimes the best choices we can make are the choices that we know what the outcomes will be because of the people around us. As opposed to these esoteric, I'm going to do it because you know Superman would have done it. Well, Superman's not in your situation, and this, things aren't black and white. Things are very complex and difficult to deal with. But it, but he stays grounded in terms of saying all of these people who have been actually pretty bad to me at points in some way, shape, and forms. I'm going to still say that if the butterflies stay, they're all going to die. And therefore, I have to make a choice for my friends. And I think that that's a cool. I think it's a cool way of taking these esoteric Justice League, uh, Greek God type of scenarios and breaking them down into a very human scenarios. And I think that if we can see more of that in the DCEU, then I'm excited about that. <laughs> it would have been interesting too, because the Justice League would have tried to work it out with the butterflies. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. No. Most likely, Superman would have been like, "Well, we could find your society, a, a planet where your society could live, and you know, I could put you on and shrink you guys down into the city of Candor and bring you, you know, or something stupid like that." Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe the uh, you know the comic book version. I'm not sure if the <laughs> the uh, Justice League version, Zack Snyder version uh, of Superman. Oh, he would have broken. He would have just crunched all the butterflies. He would have. <laughs> <laughs> Just uses heat vision on him, right? Yeah. Uh, it is interesting, though. Yeah, that final moment where he probably makes the first big decision of his life, uh, yeah. the, where he decides for himself what he's going to do, rather than just having someone tell him what to do, exactly. and and trust that they are right. Um, and yes, I did see that. Uh, it's funny that you and your wife felt that way because I did see some people online that were accusing, uh, you know, these peacemaker of being like woken right quote unquote because it's such a <laughs> bad word now right um and and yet you know like you said when you find out about it especially you know james is careful it's like no no he's just taking he just wants to take care of his family he just wants mm-hmm. to take care of his friends we, he's still got a long way to go like like his journey is <laughs> <Exactly>. not over <laughs> right yeah. i mean he's made a big step 
but his journey's not over, and it will be interesting to see where he goes from here. Uh, James, what about you? What do you want to see? Uh, the obvious, you know, what's going to happen with the butterflies and all that. I would really love for them to go into the backstory a little bit of Vigilante, just to learn where did he get these skills at? Why did he become a superhero or anti-hero? You know, what's his deal? Because, you know, he doesn't have any social skills interacting with people. What, you know, what are, what are his motives? Kind of like what they did with uh, John Cena's character. Do the same thing with Vigilante. Kind of go into the backstory, like, you know, because uh, he's on par or more lethal in some parts of the uh, show than uh, Peacemaker is like the one scene where he's the one that, that killed the the senator when Peacemaker couldn't. So I, I'd love to go, love to see more development of him. Oh, that was awesome when he came up. He was just humming, mm-hmm. just went around and grabbed the gun, took out the two kids and the wife without even yeah. like hesitating. No problem. Yep. <laughs> but that, yeah. but then when he took on the white supremacists at the jail, that was just mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, yeah, that very much reminded me of, of actually Watchmen of, uh, Rorschach in the jail. Um, he even used the uh, same line. <laughs> 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 which I was, uh, which I thought was interesting too. Cause I'm like, well, Rorschach's not based on vigilante. Rorschach is based on the question. So, uh, but it was funny. It was fun. Uh, Mike, what about you? Where do you want to see the series go? Who do you want to see return? Do you want to see them use the same theme song or switch it up? Um, I'm knowing James Gunn, he's going to switch it up. I'm sure he's going to switch it up and give us something that we're not even going to expect. Um, I'm curious to see what they, who he has rights to, what characters and stuff, because it would be kind of cool to see more Charlton characters, you know, tie into this or, you know, even, you know, because I know Blue Beetle is having his own movie, so, and they are going to be using Ted Cord in that movie. So I know that, you know, that's not going to be, oh, that's off the, but I know Captain Adam is free, which would be kind of interesting to see, um, especially with Peacemaker. And, you know, that could be dangerous beyond belief. Um, but it would be, there's so many things that James Gunn could do. And James Gunn is a fan of comics, which, and he has a love for the characters. And when he gets his hands on these characters, he, you know, he pretty much has already come out and said, you know, Guardians 3 is my last movie with Marvel. I'm now focusing on TV. And I think he's going to be in for the long run with Peacemaker and maybe some spinoffs too. Because, you know, I'd love to see Hardcore come back. I want to see, you know, Vigilante come back. I want to see Die Beard come back, you know. <laughs> and, you know, and you know, there's definitely, there's going to be repercussions also. What happened at the end of this episode with, you know, of course, the daughter, you know, basically opening everything up to clear Peacemaker's name. And Mama is not going to be too happy about that. So yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm not a big fan of uh, returning to the butterfly storyline in the second season. I just feel like we should move on from there. But maybe there's some un, untapped business. And the one thing I, I always, you know, I, I think that their their foe was formidable in the series, and it did what it set out to do. But I like a good bad guy. Give me a good like over the top or you know bad guy that. Uh, that has some development. You know, there's so many in the DCU that you can play with. Uh, I don't think from the comics, Peacemaker has 
any specific like arch enemy, but you know, uh, I so and and see what he does, um, you know. And I'm glad to see that you know Harcourt's going to be back. Uh, you know, unfortunately, Steve McGee's going to have to dye his, his beard again, uh, which he hates doing. <laughs> but he looks like that character. I, I, you know, I didn't mean to give James a disservice by saying he kind of like does his own thing with characters because there are like you, like you said, Mike, he does pay attention to the comics and he does bring that that kernel of the character. They are recognizable. So if you do like that character, I do think that there's something in here that you will like about his approach to a lot of his adaptations of characters. And I'd like to see what he does with, with a big bad. Um, and not just a white supremacist big bad, but it just <laughs> like a big bad that we can really get to know and maybe even feel for. And, and, and that would be really interesting. So, but we'll see. All right. So that's been our discussion of season one of Peacemaker. Yes. If there's, if we've done nothing else this, this hour, I have actually learned to say Peacemaker instead of Peacekeeper. So, <laughs> so now when we go to do our like, um, uh, our retrospective. Mike, Mike, hold on. I don't think anyone's listening because they've drinking too much every time you. Say <laughs> you know, now that now that we do when we do our uh, uh, retrospective of Farscape, now I'm going to be totally screwed. Uh, but anyway, um, thanks guys for joining us. Uh, we're going to be right back, and we're going to close out the show. Lighter here. Wish you could keep up on DC Comics, but don't have the time or the money? Not a problem. Join Cletus Jacobs and I as we bring you recaps and commentary on DC Comics, television, movies, and more, whether they are good or not. The Earth Station DCU podcast comes out weekly and is part of the ESO Network. Welcome to a Geek Girl's Take. I'm your host, Angela, and this week, this Geek Girl is talking about Season 2 of The Great North, and just overall gushing about how much I love this show. So, newer episodes for Season 2 have been released, and this show just keeps getting funnier and funnier. So far, my favorite episodes of Season 2 have been the Murder Mystery Party episode. Judy is such a weird, awkward kid, but is also so endearing, and you just have to love her. And the fact that she talks to Alanis Morissette in the sky every morning is also just fantastic and funny. The pasta episode of season two is still super, super duper gross to me. Washing old noodles, ugh, it's so gross. And Nudie the Noodle is still terrifying to me when it comes to mascot characters. He is scary. He will hurt you. The most recent episode, though, was rather fantastic. Beef's youngest son, Ham, wants to hang out with his friends during the week, but the problem is they only hang out during their mom's mom night. And Ham doesn't have a mom, so he hasn't been invited. Well, he decides he's going to bring his dad to it. So Beef, not being the social type, is actually, you know, really nervous about this. But he ends up being a really great part of this mom's group. And the group of them decide to freeze one of the mom's cheating boyfriend's snow bike into a solid block of ice, which Beef shows them how to do. And it is hilarious. We see Ham save his friends from a sledding incident, and we watch the other members of the family have a seance to see what is haunting their oven mitt that keeps mysteriously moving around the house. 
there is so much going on in this episode and the writing is so amazing for just this show altogether, not just this episode. And the characters are so wonderful. Like they're so weird, but you have to love them because they're just such fantastic characters. More people really should be watching this show because to me, it surpasses Bob's Burgers and hilarity. I mean, it's done by the same artistic group of people, but it's so much funnier to me. And I wish more people have been watching it because right now there's only like one and a half seasons out and I hope they make more. Lots and lots more. Well, thanks for listening to A Geek Girl's Take. What will I talk about next week? Well, you're going to have to listen to find out. So that's going to wrap up another episode of the Earth Station One podcast. want to thank our guests for being here tonight. Jeremy, you made it through your first episode with us, man. Thank you, thank you for having me. Like I said, I've always been a fan of the SO, you know, friends of the, of the network and glad to be on my first episode. And thank you so much. And uh, do you want me to go ahead and promote my, my show as well? Or? Of course. This is your time to shout out about whatever you wish. Awesome. Uh, yes, uh, my show, it's always people get the spelling weird, but it's just fandom, not phantom, <laughs> fandom squad podcast. Uh, and it's like I said, it's just pop culture reviews. You know, I talked a little bit everybody, H. John Benjamin from Bob's Burgers. You know, I review different stuff like the new, if you're a 90s kid like me, I reviewed the, the new Nickelodeon stuff coming on Paramount Plus. Uh, just check it out anywhere you get your podcasts. Oh, I don't even want to talk about the Fairly Odd Parents remake they're doing. Uh, <laughs> God, that looked horrible. That looked Oh, I just awful. saw your post on the network Facebook about it, and I was like, yes, Mike agrees with me. <laughs> and I love when William was little, we used to watch that together, and I, used, I thought it was adorable, but oh, man, no, 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 no. No, 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 not going to touch that one. Jay. Get me out of this one. Thank you, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, if you want to check something out that I've done, um, I have a book out called Death of a Bounty Hunter. Um, you can go check that. In fact, if you like Peacemaker, you're probably going to like Death of a Bounty Hunter. It has sort of the, some of that same types of humor. It's not quite as raunchy, so you don't need to worry about that, but it's got some of the same types of humor. And it's a steampunk, western, dark fantasy mashup. So it's basically a weird western. So if you're into that kind of stuff... Check out Death of a Bounty Hunter. And then I'm always doing uh, my podcast and uh, my YouTube channel called How Stories Work with Jay Shear. And basically, I'm trying to understand stories better, and I'm just breaking them down as much as possible. And my next one is going to be about uh, Iron Man. So we're back in the Ooh. MCU. Ooh. Awesome. Cool. Going back. <laughs> That's right. Going back a little ways. Back to MCU. Awesome. So it'd be very interesting to do because there's so many versions of Iron Man to talk about. And it's like, I'll be very That's curious to sure. see where you go. And I've been I'm liking just gonna what you've been doing. I'm just going to stick with the movies. I'm just going to stick with the movies. I don't go as deep as you guys go into comics. I just can't do it. There's too much information for me. No, I've been liking what you've been doing with the new podcast. And I've been following you guys already. So it's very cool. Awesome. Thanks. I appreciate it. Not a problem. And James, you made it through your first episode as co-host. Yes, yes. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, it was a great time. Had a great, great time here. Um, thank my wife for, you know, bidding at Dragon Con Auction so I could be on this episode and a few others. Uh, if you guys ever go to Dragon Con in Atlanta, make sure you go to the auction. Uh, all the money goes to a uh, great foundation. 
Um, so, and you can get a lot of cool, neat things there. We got a whole bunch of stuff. I think my wife spent like three years worth of my paychecks there. But, uh, you know, it was well worth it. And it was worth the 50 cents you spent for ESO. So it was perfect. I think it was 57 with tax. Okay, good. Okay. At least, you know, the government got there a little bit too. So awesome. Anything you want to shout out about or promote or anything? Oh, not right now. Uh, Well, in the future, my my gaming group and I will be doing a podcast and a – it's about games and stuff like that. We're going to call it Where We Play Our Way. We take games like D&D. GURPS, whatever it is, or board games, and we kind of tweak the rules to kind of balance it more. So hopefully on some of the future podcasts, I'll be on with you guys. I'll be able to plug that in once we get it up and going. That sounds wonderful, man. We appreciate it. And it's going to be fun getting to know you over the next you know four or five episodes. So that's very cool. Appreciate it. Thanks. And Mr. Mike, we made it through another one, my friend. We did, and it was kind of bumpy for me. I kept getting the damn name of the show wrong, but, uh, you know, it was my pleasure. Oh, dude, you know, whenever you want to talk about your peacekeeper, it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Goodness gracious me. Anything you want to shout out about? Uh, Look, I'm just going to say it really simply, uh, and and just uh, I support Ukraine. That's all you need to say. I know it's just amazing watching this unfold on TV and, me- and media on newspapers and and I don't think we're even seeing the half of it and truthfully you know folks there's chair there's legit charities out there be careful on who you're giving money to if you want to help the Ukrainian people because there UNICEF. are UNICEF UNICEF is the big one and yeah. I, I know also the Red Cross and you know organizations like that are trying to get in there to help with these poor, poor people who are having their way of life destroyed because of some idiot. And you know what, folks, if you support what's going on over there, or if you're supporting what Russia is doing, please don't listen to my podcast. I don't want you here. And I never, ever tell people not to listen to my show, you know, but this is not what we're about. This is not what I grew up believing in. And this is not what the America I grew up supporting. That's not what this is about. This is about freedom. This is about people who were free uh, being attacked by an oligarch. And it's not communism anymore. That's gone. He has been a monarch for many, many years already. And, you know, folks, this is just ridiculous and I might not gotten every, you know, term right or something, but come on folks, our hearts are in the right place and we want to support these people. And we've actually had listeners in Ukraine. So, you know, this makes me even more upset to know that people who listen to our shows are, have their way of life. They're never going to be the same folks. You know, it's never, ever, ever going to be the same. And think about that when you go to bed in your nice, comfy bed tonight, you know, and everything. How much worse a lot of people have it than you. You know, and, you know, we usually, you know, say at the end of the show, give money to the ESO Patreon, give this. Not this time, folks. You know, ESO, we're surviving. I want you guys to donate the money to these proper charities. I think it's for a good cause and, you know... If you want to do it in ESO's name, that's fine. 
That's cool. I appreciate it. But do it for, for yourself. Don't do it for because I'm telling you to. I want you to do it because you want to. And this is what the show is about. And, you know, we have fun and giggles and everything. But sometimes you got to be a little serious, too. So definitely, folks, this is why we podcast. This is why we talk to you people weekly. And you know what? We're recording this on Monday. By Thursday, it could be 100% worse. We don't know. And every day, it's just it's just craziness. Hug your loved ones. Hug your wife, husbands. You know, sisters, brothers, boyfriend, girlfriend, pets, children, you know, all the above. You know, be thankful for what you got because it could be gone like that. And you know what? That's all I'm going to say tonight. Join us next week. We'll be talking about the Batman. I know. I don't want to go any further into it. I don't want to go into the closing. I'm done with this. Everyone, just be thankful for what you got. All right. Hope everyone has a great week. Love you guys. Peace, and we are done. Boom. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek. <laughs>